Hey everybody, this is Eric Wright, the host of the Disco Posse podcast. Hello and welcome, friends. Um, please do subscribe and rate the podcast if you can. We're loving the fact that we're getting lots of great feedback. And speaking of feedback, the best way you can feedback is to visit our friends. This episode is sponsored by our good friends at Veeam Software. So congratulations to Veeam on lots of great releases and their brand new latest digital Veeam on conference, which just happened. So if you go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse, that's vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. And they've got you covered for all of your data protection needs, including back that SAS up, back that cloud up, back everything up. So make sure that you do visit vee.am forward slash Disco Posse, and you can check it out. You can even just buy it right there and, and put it into place. This is a great conversation with the team from SpectroCloud. We talked with Tenry Fu and Tina Nolte, not only on the SpectroCloud story, which is really, really cool. I'm loving what they're doing, but they've got both really solid backgrounds coming from OpenStack, coming from private cloud, and, and a real great history in Kubernetes. So it's a really great conversation. Uh, you're going to want to check it out, and you're going to want to keep your eyes on SpectroCloud. Very, very cool team and very, very cool set of products that they're bringing to the market. We go a lot into kind of the approach, and this is where the fun begins. So with that, enjoy the show. Thanks, Eric. Uh, so maybe start with the introduction, right? Uh, so formally, my name is Tenry Fu. Uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Special Cloud. Uh, so before starting Special Cloud, uh, I was at Cisco, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, so I was at Cisco's cloud business unit, uh, leading Cisco's uh, multi-cloud management and uh, Kubernetes and uh, uh, OpenStack uh, private cloud solutions. Uh, so I joined Cisco through the acquisition of my previous startup uh, called Clicker Technologies. Uh, at, um, actually, we collaborate uh, with Tobinomic uh, quite closely. Uh, yeah, we, you uh, and I actually have a, a fun personal history, which is kind of always funny for the yeah. listeners. <laughs> yeah. So Clicker was a multi-cloud management platform uh, acquired by Cisco back in 2016. Um, before Clicker, uh, I also worked uh, at the VMware, uh, leading vCenter development, uh, and also McAfee, uh, which uh, I, I worked at um, uh, at the McAfee's ePolicy Orchestrator, uh, is uh, McAfee's uh, system management platform as well. And Tina, you also have a, a neat uh, history amongst the the Cisco uh, you know Cisco world and and a lot of stuff in between. Let's let's introduce you and and then we'll kind of talk about Spectro Cloud and and all the goodness that's in front of us here. Yeah, sounds good. I had two tours of duty. Yeah, I'm Tina Nolte, VP Product at Spectro Cloud. I actually know Tenry from Cisco. Um, I ran the cloud and DevOps M and A and corporate venture team. So Turbonomic is certainly uh, certainly a company that that I'm familiar with. This is always that those funny things too, and I I always warn people before we record too. I always start to say like, hey, I, I, this is where I work, but it'll actually have nothing to do with what we talk about. This is the rare case where it actually has a surprising amount to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, let's see. Um, 
Well, previously I, I led product at Nebula. That was an OpenStack um, private cloud startup. Yes, yes. <laughs> Nebula is so cool. <laughs> oh, we can talk about what's so cool. Yeah. Um, well, it, it was so cool, except for the market didn't didn't the market wasn't ready. Okay. And there's so many that product market fit. God, we and this is actually part of the, what I want to talk with both of you about is, you know, so anyways, product market fit is, is critical. And the Nebula story is, is uh, both a fantastic study of things going well and things going wrong and the right reasons and wrong reasons why each of those things occurred. But, um, but yeah, anyways, I, I, I keep cutting you off and all this great story. <laughs> I'm just excited by your, by both of your resumes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think we talk more about it later. But the OpenStack market is really where the fit kind of kind of fell apart, right? In the enterprise. So, yeah, interesting. Um, it's also dry scale. That was a, a scale out, like a rack scale architecture infrastructure startup. Um, I also was at Cisco UCS. I ran product management for UCS Manager, so the compute platform over there. And then I was in Pure Storage's CTO office, where I led the, a lot of the cloud native, um, cloud native initiatives there. Well, and this is where it's always interesting, and and both of you have this neat cross industry experience that's come, but you've each carried your own very specific localized capability throughout different companies. That maybe those companies appeared like they did vastly different things than what you do, but it actually tells you that inside a storage company, a compute company, a network company, that this, like the people experience and solving the really people-oriented problems through software is fundamental to all of that stuff that's wrapped around it, right? And, and I think that's, when I look over your histories, you know, you, you both seem to lean to, you know, understanding enterprise, loving open source. And so like, you know, great happiness on, on both fronts. Cause I'm a firm believer that OpenStack would have done great if we as a community had accepted that the best thing that could happen to it was large vendors jumping on board and distributing and packaging. And so I feel like, and so I, that's right. I see the I see the hint of like, uh oh, here we go, <laughs> counterpoint. Um, and, and so I'm actually seeing this sort of place where Kubernetes is at this neat inflection point, where I I call it the the OpenStack Atlanta, where the first time there were more customers than vendors, which was kind of cool, but it's also where vendors became heavily involved, and the expo floor was big. The parties were huge. And then the community divided, saying, well, wait a second, whoa, 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 you know, this is, you are now trying to influence the outcome of this platform. And so here I was at KubeCon, I believe it was whatever, like two or three ago. And I saw, I saw Atlanta playing out in front of me. You know, I saw booths that were now VMware, EMC, or whatever, Dell, Microsoft, and, the beginning of some sort of like discomfort about the presence of those big names. And I kind of walked up and down the aisle and I was like, you feel like it's like dead man walking. You know, all these companies are just by the nature of startups are probably going to get bought, you know, or, or hopefully thrive, right. I mean, wherever they, they go. So anyways, it's, 
maybe let's just start if you don't mind, you know, Tina, if you want to start or, or Tenry, let's talk about SpectroCloud. Let's lead folks into what you folks are doing. Cause I am like, I'm all in on this idea and, and it's one that I've seen that's a problem that needs to be solved. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So, so Eric, it's just uh, like from our prior life, right? So for example, when I worked at Clicker and the Cisco, right? So when you deal with different clouds, right, the multi-cloud management really is the only thing you can do, right? Uh, that's because every cloud is so different, right? Uh, the API is different, the image format is different, workload is generally not portable. Um, but now I think with Kubernetes and the container technologies for the very first time, right, both workload and the infrastructure become truly portable across multiple cloud environment. So that's really everyone's dream. It will open up a lot of new opportunities, right? However, right, as you mentioned, we do see uh, exactly kind of the same tragedy, right, that the OpenStack being through uh, Kubernetes is a very cool open source project, uh, but it's not that easy to, to get that into a true production grade. It's not that easy to operate, right, and manage. Uh, so we would like to provide a platform, right, uh, from, um, uh, to, 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 to allow enterprise to very easily uh, provision and manage uh, Kubernetes in any cloud environment. But not only we can manage this Kubernetes environment, but we also want to allow enterprise to not have to compromise between ease of use and flexibility and control, right? So we firmly believe no distro, not a single distro uh, will solve every, every use case, right? There's no one size fit for all kind of a scenario, right? So we want to give the enterprise a flexibility and control to be able to easily define their own Kubernetes into an infrastructure stack. One way that we explain that to some folks is that we, we visualize an infrastructure control continuum, right? Which really forces people into this trade-off against ease of use, like Tenry said. So you have kind of one extreme around, you know, the managed Kubernetes on public cloud offers. So those are, you know, nirvana around ease of use, right? But you don't have any control over what's the cloud you're using, right? When do yeah. you opt new options, et cetera. And then opposite end of that spectrum, you've got do it yourself. So full control, every bit of infrastructure ground up. And if you want OpenStack for your deployment, like, you can go ahead and do that. But you know, here it doesn't scale, right? And to Tenry's point, um, what we're doing is aiming to find a way to enable an enterprise to exist all across that control continuum, but but make sure that that whatever model that that they're utilizing is something that they could manage consistently in at scale. The the phrasing is very important in the way you describe it because we've we're really this weird it, like the description of single pane of glass and and all one throat to choke. There's always these things of like these horrible you know, euphemisms of like a thing that everybody wants one interface. And actually it was neat. And I was on a session yesterday. Uh, it was called Distance DevOps. And I was talking about infrastructure as code and, and I was talking about Terraform. I spent a surprising amount of time talking about HashiCorp tools through, even though I work at Turbonomic, because I'm helping people do that stuff to interact with our systems, yeah. right? It's, yeah. and, and unlocking that automation. And we had this idea of like, instead of a, automation, 
you know, control plane, you know, where it was with the team at Rackin, who Rob Hirschfeld, you, you folks may actually know as well. Um, he, he coined this phrase and I co-opted it and used it. I'm going to totally steal it, except I've given him credit now. So I'll give him credit one more time and then I can use it from now on. He talks about automation chaining. And the multi-cloud management is that same sort of thing. Is like it becomes the, the management chain or where you're still using the underlays and your underlays are now maybe self-service infrastructure themselves. But your control point is critical that you own the control point. And I think that's where people have the comfort and then they know, because I don't want to know about the underlying APIs and the switches and changes that are going on. I don't want to know, you know, I love, so here's an example. And I said, I wouldn't talk about competitive stuff. I'm going to immediately launch into competitive. So I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of people that are using Fargate and they're like, this is great. It's seamless. I don't have to worry about it. I just set my minimums. It deploys and scales as I need. I'm like, call me in three months when you get that a couple of bills. And because they have, there's no understanding of what's underneath it. So they 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 get the magic of complete transparency in deployment, and no transparency in in billing. And so, not that that's a competitive thing, but more just like calling out another Kubernetes implementation that people have said they love, and I very quickly find them going, hmm, maybe let's investigate other ways that we can do this. Because what if you wanted to do be cross-cloud or bring that back on-prem okay now you're in yeah. that interesting spot exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> or what if you hit that instance where all of a sudden the fact that all these things are totally transparent to you right and you don't need to manage it becomes a problem right it's like right changed in your version you're like wait what just happened yeah. why does this app not work anymore <laughs> right so. well the, and this is the neat thing so kubernetes is what, what kills people in adopting a lot of open source technologies is sort of the fear of consistency in stabilization, right? We talked about, remember OpenStack, we went through this whole thing of like long-term support additions. Like, can we actually lock an addition? And you, you know, I was like, that's a fantastic idea that no one's going to like. I like that. <laughs> but, but for a lot of enterprises and, and that sort of, that audience, they kind of like, Hey, I'm going to lock in for a little while, you know, and the danger is, you know, why are we having to still have conversations about migrating off SQL 2008? I'm like, it actually has the date right in there. It tells you that it's 11 years old. <laughs> so Kubernetes, you know, and, and, you know, you think about this, people are worried because what's the version of Kubernetes? Like even when the fact that it, we're still on like zero dot versions for, for so many portions of it it's people don't understand what that means the version of rush doesn't matter it's maturity it's it's platform strength it's broadness of adoption there's a lot of other metrics rather than like the fact that it's 0. 0.12 0. 0.4 <laughs> right yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time i mean there's no getting around the fact that when you deploy an application there can be dependencies on some of these versions right right um and sometimes you want whatever the newer version is because there's some set of features clearly that come you know come with them and yeah you know back to the kind of control discussion if you don't have control over when those those pieces of technology get upgraded within your stack, then you don't have control over when you get to pick up 
those features or whether or not you want to slow down right and be slower than the cloud provider so all things people have to think about yeah so tenry you you obviously with the experience with founding clicker and bringing that to market like you saw the the complexities and opportunities in in multi-cloud and i would say that you actually you beat the market to it because there was an, an, an incredible consolidation that occurred of people that were trying to sort of solve that problem. Some are still straggling out there, and but they're probably suffering because they didn't make that right move to find uh, an organization that could, you know, amplify that story. So now this is a, a neat time that I think you're at this beautiful opportunity in the Kubernetes space where some have dabbled a bit with the idea already and had moderate success or, or different different levels of, of success. So I think you're at this beautiful, whatever the adoption life cycle is, you know, we, I feel like this is good. Now, what was your, what was your impetus to start now and tackle this problem in the way that you've chosen? Yeah. So, right. So we look at Kubernetes, it's pretty hard to manage. Right. And then, right we are actually inspired by how Kubernetes itself uh, uh, is, is managing the container-based application, right? So if you look at Kubernetes uh, compared to any other container management platform, right? I think what really make Kubernetes takes off is it makes the application lifecycle management so easy, right? So you have a declarative model for your application, container application, Right? And then you just deploy into Kubernetes, use that YAML definition, and then Kubernetes will automatically take care of deployment, automatically take care of upgrade if needed. Right? And if your application, some part uh, uh, got shut down, Kubernetes will automatically relaunch the container pods. Right? So, so we are asking ourselves, why not making Kubernetes lifecycle management just like how Kubernetes manage applications? So we want to provide this kind of a mechanism to allow users to very easily to model Kubernetes, right, uh, through uh, uh, what we call cluster profile, right, to uh, a declarative model to model Kubernetes, and then from our uh, orchestration engine and our SaaS platform, we'll be able to very easily to use that declarative model as a kind of a disaster state or a single source of truth to manage your end-to-end -end Kubernetes lifecycle across any cloud environment. And this is the entire Kubernetes infrastructure stack. So extended it from Kubernetes cluster to applications itself, right? Through the entire stack, right? Base operating system, et cetera. You had me at through entire stack. <laughs> because that's that's it, right? It, we've there's a lot of even people ask me all the time they're like you know why would you do like workload optimization and, and placements in kubernetes doesn't it do that automatically i'm like well it does it really good once and then it kind of doesn't go back to check until something goes really really wrong and then it then it's like oh something's gone terribly wrong let me just re redeploy that and it was funny to see that the now we have the infrastructure very non-self-managing like it is really fundamentally it's like an anti-pattern to the fact that you're enabling all of this freedom and this this ability for developers and it's such an anti-pattern to then how you operate the infrastructure yeah. you go down you hit a wall yeah, so. uh, yeah. 
Yeah. And I think timing wise, I mean, something that, you know, you're asking about um, was around the why now. And I think that something that has become pretty clear over the course of the last couple of years, which, you know, was not the case, for example, if you look at other markets like OpenStack, was that there was clear enterprise adoption, right? People might right. still be asking about how you move to production, but there are developers in every major company, if you've got a digital transformation effort, as tired as that phrase may be, like there's Kubernetes somewhere in that, in, in that organization, right? Very so much there's so. a market there. Um, it's an early market, but there is a market. Yeah, but you can you can definitely see the I I think that Kubernetes will succeed on the shoulders of a broken OpenStack history, in that we 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 wanted the companies that are broadly and aggressively adopting and successfully adopting Kubernetes, are ones that also brought yeah. OpenStack into their environments, but I'm already seeing the change because I think. OpenStack to be successful, God, it's, uh, Rob will Rob be smiling somewhere that it's, it's time to trash OpenStack. We're both like huge proponents for OpenStack, but we spent the most time just like talking about how it was, it was doomed for failure in so many ways. <laughs> but what, what we did was we tried and we didn't make it. It's kind of like, like going on a diet and then like slipping and then going, okay, no, no I'm serious. I'm going to do it this time. But you've like you know the first pain, so you know you can get through that. We, in order to succeed with OpenStack, we needed to change the way we build applications. That's right. Yep. And we didn't. So everybody had these big, uh, big eyes at the buffet. They're like, "I'm going to go all OpenStack. I'm going to get rid of my VMware ELA. This is going to be fantastic." And they said, "Okay, I've got." There's one organization that I worked with, and they said they had a 12-month plan to move away from their traditional virtualization platform. And they said, "And it's got to be cloud-native. It's got to be like it had to meet all these requirements." And next thing you know, they were standing up like, you know, consistent, available IaaS-style OpenStack infrastructure, and then doing load balancers and doing DR so that they could actually have it fail. And they're doing live migrations. I'm like. Oh, that's funny. You're you're getting asked to build enterprise virtualization using that's right. OpenStack. And then the 12 months came by and they were about 10% done. Because you can't go back to every app owner and say, I need you to refactor your app. That's right. And yeah. I think what's different about Kubernetes, though, is that a developer has a reason to bite some of this stuff off. They see right. the real benefit, right? When I think to your point, right? When you looked at OpenStack, a lot of it was a VM vending machine philosophy, right? Yeah. So a cheaper, you know, cheaper VMware. Like, well, <laughs> yeah. Right. VMware's had a lot of time. They built a lot of services. If you're thinking about putting those same apps over here, like you're gonna you're gonna discover that you're not, you don't have everything you need. <laughs> Well, and your your idea with like Spectra Cloud being agnostic to the underlay is really one of the the things that changes how you can think about deployment, in that it frees you from you know the 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 evasive lock-in problem, right? And lock-in is not a it's it's a, a technical problem, but it results in a workload portability really, and so I think no one really moves. No one goes like, I'm going to take this machine. I'm going to redeploy it onto GKE. Then I'm going to redeploy it over onto a PKS on-prem or whatever. Like, no, that doesn't actually happen. However, you buy a company 
or you merge with a company and they've already got a, a large AWS presence. And so they've got some stuff there. You've got a VMware environment. You've got a Hyper-V shop that's in the corner that you, you picked up. We get that sort of mix and match. So I don't think that we're going to design to deploy everywhere. However, being a singular source of truth to that whole infrastructure picture and operationalizing it is it's huge you know and it seems so elegant in its simplicity of the message but there's a lot going on underneath it yeah you drive consistency to the extent that you can between those different deployments and exactly to your point like you think about people and processes you're able to leverage this you know experience and knowledge you have within your organization so much more effectively, right? Because <laughs> you know, like, okay, I've got control over what this stack looked like here and there and this other place. I was able to pick which of the places, you know, I wanted to go ahead and change what some of those options look like and which places where maybe more importantly, I want to keep them the same, right? Yeah. Uh, Tenry, when you, I, I'm curious in your thought, especially as you were sort of building the, the, the founding vision of this, we often, we often, we first thing we have to do is think of a market, right? Obviously we have to have, you know, team, what do they call it? Team, TAM and, uh, you know, technology. So, you, you know, you got a great team because, you know, look at, look at the two folks that I'm talking to right here. You can create believers very easily, right? You look at the technology and, you know, we can, we will go in a bit, actually, I'd like to actually dive a bit deeper into some of the platform tech, but the TAM, you know, total addressable market obviously has to be there. And, so we've got this neat thing where we've got the KubeCon attendees who are all about like upstream kids. Let's, let's, let's keep it vanilla. And I like that. I, I like that. There's always going to be those proponents who are, are more, you know, keeping the, the sacred, the sacred, you know, master branch. <laughs> and, and then you've got the bottom end of the, I'm not going to go near it, which is your pure virtualization folks. They just don't have the time capability knowledge or maybe business need to even look at it and then there's all this exciting middle ground which folks are going to try and get into because they're ready for the delivery of it to try it but they don't know how to get started they don't know how to operationalize they don't know how to go to day two and that's the big or they've gone day zero day one and then gone back to day zero and day one and back to days like so you you're you're delivering day two on day zero. Oh yeah, yeah. And we want to cover the entire entire spectrum, right? From day zero, day one, day two of end-to-end -end Kubernetes lifecycle, right? So who's your ideal customer, right? Today, if I were to look at somebody that you just you can walk into and they they immediately get it. I I I'm your guy, right? Because I I already immediately get it. But let's imagine a what's an organizational sort of persona of somebody that is really ready for, for what Spectra Cloud has. Yeah, so we are sell to Kubernetes operators, right? That they are using um, day in, day out with their Kubernetes. That's really their breath of life, right? And they feel the pain to manage Kubernetes, right? how to keep it secure, how to handle deployment upgrade, right? uh, and, and how to even handle multiple clusters, uh, uh, potentially in different cloud environments, right? So we are targeting these Kubernetes operators are mostly from uh, mid to large enterprise that they really value the flexibility and the control, right? And the ease of use all together. Uh, and 
we would like to, the ideal customer will be, they already have Kubernetes either in production or near production, right? Yeah, we are not in the business to educate them the benefit of Kubernetes and you need to containerize your application, right? That might be a little bit too early in the journey. Uh, but if they already using Kubernetes uh, and then now they feel the pain to uh, how to manage Kubernetes, right? Especially for most of the enterprise, really I think what matter for them is how to get quickly to get their application, their business application into the market, right? Uh, Kubernetes is just a mean to run the application, give them the business agility, but not necessarily will impact their, 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 their top line, right? So, uh, so we can ac actually help them to take care of the Kubernetes management so that they can shift their resource and focus on their own value and business application. Is there, that's every, very much a key target area. It's, you know, find, find me somebody who's, I need to find somebody who's had pain with Kubernetes. Find anyone who's running it, right? So <laughs> it's, it's, a fair, <laughs> it's a fairly easy audience, but running it at scale very much highlights uh, you know, where that pain occurs. And I, I always hate the phrase at scale too, because it's, it's such a misnomer. Like yeah. I used to get asked all the time, people are like, I hear OpenStack has difficulty at scale. I'm like, how big's your environment? We got like 400 virtual machines. I'm like, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> like yeah. I could, I could run a Linux box and I could carve out, you know, the simplest possible uh, LVM infrastructure and I could run what you're running. Like, no, don't worry about at scale, but Kubernetes uh, is an interesting problem that architecturally we've gone through some growing pains too, right? I actually did a webinar the day we're recording here talking about the pains of, you know, how to get successful adoption of Kubernetes. And it's all architecture and people like what's your RBAC strategy? What's your, your, if you're going to go multi-cloud, you know, how are you going to handle federation? like federation federation that came up all over the place you know the on the fact that we're waiting for cluster api to solidify and be broadly accepted all these other things i'm like those are different decisions that need to be made so what tell me about how spectro cloud hacks into that some of that pain and hopefully solves where, where do you solve in some of those architectural issues yeah so um maybe pull back and do kind of high level yeah, yes. I, yeah. I went right, right to 301 on that one, right? Yeah. Let's start at the top. Oh, because that leads right into to what you're asking. So, yeah, so what is Spectral Cloud? So Spectral Cloud, it's a multi-tenant SaaS platform that gives enterprises control over their Kubernetes infrastructure stacks, right? And we try to do that consistently and at scale. And a way to think about what we've done is kind of talking about it in two parts. So the first part is what we think of as modern enterprise table states, Kubernetes management. And so that includes things like, you know, we can help people provision and manage their clusters across public, private cloud, bare metal. So the idea there is people can manage consistently across environments, like you were talking about earlier. And we provide and manage Kubernetes experience for those clusters. We, we handle lifecycle management and updates behind the scenes from the SaaS. And then we also clearly work on things like, you know, you can't sell to the enterprise without our back and policy. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like check, 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 check. Again, so modern table stakes, not really the interesting part. Our unique angle is that second part where we do profile-based management for the Kubernetes infrastructure stacks, the entire stack. 
control their flexibility. And we use that word a lot, control. Um, you have control to customize what your integrations look like based on your individual needs through profiles, which can be different from group to group or even from use case to use case. And so, you know, as we were talking about earlier, now cluster lifecycle management is something that we extend beyond just what's happening with Kubernetes to the entire infrastructure stack um, as a whole. So the observation was really that if you looked around the market, enterprise solutions with respect to that whole stack are very much like my way or the highway, right? That's right. <laughs> It's like package distro managed services like hey this is what you're allowed to deploy that doesn't work for everybody and so um this is where we get to some of the, the decisions architecturally we design technology allow people to define and deploy their own infrastructure stack combos we broke kubernetes deployment into multiple layers that are combined together and that's what the cluster profile is so right. you can think of it as a declarative model of kubernetes infrastructure stack right so layers are you know, the base operating system, Kubernetes itself, network storage integrations, and then stuff like security, logging, monitoring, load balancing, that kind of thing. Um, each layer has got options around technologies and versions. Um, once the cluster profile is defined, somebody can deploy as many clusters from that profile as they want into the environment of their choice. We do that with our palette orchestrator so that's an orchestration engine for multi-cloud and bare metal support that's actually built on top of the cluster API project that you were just talking about. Nice. Um, yeah, so it basically takes the cluster profiles and then uses them as templates when it's deploying clusters into whatever your target is. And then like Kubernetes itself, Palette utilizes a declarative desired state model. So yep. once, yeah, once the cluster profile is modified or updated, or if a cluster that's deployed from a profile sort of deviates from whatever that definition was, Palette will automatically reconcile those states to what's in that cluster profile. You, you, you're talking about source of truth, right? Like yeah. cluster profiles become the real source of truth. Well, and this is the, the interesting thing that doing state management and continuous state management and, and happens for a lot of reasons. And one, of course, is configuration drift, uh, you know, profile drift. And, and I, I like the idea. So you can effectively take that profile and bring it into different infrastructure pools and then just kind of redeploy. I like the palette. The first thing I think of is like the, the painter's thing with the little thumb through it. And they're like, that's the idea. Like you choose, you want purple? All right, let me get my red and my blue. You know, we, you, can, you can make it do what you need it to do, but it gives you that flexibility of the, the control of those layers. And then the outcome is a beautiful painting, so. Yeah. Or the other palette, which is a, a nice tasty menu, one of the two. It's like a it's like prefix for uh, Kubernetes. You know, you just oh, tell me what you want. <laughs> You're good. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that declarative desired state model is what enables you to do that without fear, right? Because otherwise you wind up in the situation where somebody, an organization can deploy a bunch of these. They're like, oh my God, how am I going to manage the upgrade life cycles against each of these different cluster profiles that, that right. you know, because of the you know desired state maintenance model, that declarative model, it winds up being something where that's not a fear that you have to carry with you. Yeah, and it's not a, a one-time deployment tool, right? That uh, give you the flexibility yeah. to deploy the the different technology with the entire stack, but right. you can use that to handle the day two operations, right? To to maintain the upgrade and uh, and the drift and all these things, as you mentioned. Because the the thing that I've bumped into so many times, and and you know why I 
I look at different infrastructure configuration management and, and you, you end up with this kind of a potpourri of different tools in order to achieve certain things. And I've actually recently did a session. It was like on using Terraform to then trigger Ansible to do, you know, other things further up the stack. And I had this neat kind of like virtual stack of different toolkits. And then someone would say, well, why don't you try and do, you know, something in the middle stack with the bottom layer. I'm like, well, cause you know, I need state management at the infrastructure layer and then I need app state management. So the infrastructure tool is not particularly good at understanding what's going on inside. Um, so you, you actually go a bit broader with state management because you're, you're at the OS layer, you're at the Kubernetes you know, layer and you're effectively down at the, at the metal, you know, or, or virtual metal anyways. So what are the underlying platforms that you can deploy into kind of out of the box? Yeah, so out of the box, uh, we support uh, public clouds like uh, AWS, Azure, Google, right? and private clouds like uh, VMware, OpenStack. And we also support uh, direct bare metal provisioning, right, end-to-end -end with uh, base OS, from base OS to Kubernetes to, to additional add-ons, right? Uh, so this uh, give a... Uh, a broader uh, coverage uh, for enterprise depends on which target environment that they want to uh, run their Kubernetes, right? And we are fairly vendor neutral, right? So unlike some cloud providers, so-called multi-cloud solution that may have a <laughs> hidden agenda that still want to log into their own particular cloud, right? We want to be truly third-party vendor neutral, allow user to provision and manage Kubernetes uh, anywhere. And back to control, you know, where do you have to be? What do those stacks need to look like? Here's a tool that, you know, allow or platform that allows you to go ahead and deploy the stacks you need into the places you want to be. Now, I, I don't want to talk ahead of roadmap and I don't want to be that, that, that new requirements guy who's like, Hey, this is great. This you've built an amazing thing. Can you also do this other thing that's not in your, that no one would actually care about other than me for this nerd question? Uh, for other <laughs> other contributions, like community contributions to potentially different underlays, like I often think of like a DigitalOcean, a packet, or or maybe another like VPS or bare metal cloud hosting opportunity. Is there a, a chance for those vendors or or even community to potentially bring that that shim in and 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 or what, however you you whether you get to plug in or however you a provider whatever you want to call it. Yeah, actually, our plan is uh, we going to open source our core technology, right? So this uh, cluster profile, our pilot orchestration engine that we build on top of cluster API, uh, along with uh, all the integration technology stacks, uh, what we call packs, right? Uh, and uh, their hosting repository, right? Uh, this uh, technology we going to uh, open source that so that. Uh, the uh, ecosystem can use that to do deeper and richer integration. Uh, and also, right, uh, if uh, anyone else want to add additional cloud environment support, uh, underneath we, because we leverage uh, uh, cluster API, right? And the cluster API already kind of have a cloud provider plugin interface, right? right. So uh, we can actually uh, uh, help uh, doing additional integration into Cluster API as well. Uh, in fact, we uh, contribute to Cluster API, right? And uh, all right, for example, some of the bare metal support and all those uh, 
uh, we're going to extend cluster API to, to other support and that will benefit the community as well. Yeah, we felt yeah. it was important to leverage an open source project that was gaining momentum, right? There's no yeah. reason to do something different. Yeah, so we don't want to reinvent the wheel, right? We want to leverage, but in the meantime, we want to contribute back. That's right. Now, I, I'm going to, I like what you just said, uh, Tina, and it highlights the thing that we think we found in the, I talked about the, the divergence of community to corporate that happened in OpenStack. We're sort of sensing this. We've got folks like Joseph Jacks. God bless him. He's a great, great fellow. And he's all the open core person, right? Like everything should be open core. If you're not open core, you're, you're, you're killing people. Like it, as if you're contributing. He, he's so sort of, he's very fervent on his love of this open core model. And which is great until you try to start a business wrapped around an open core model and have to fund that business and maintain like, and I, I really, I adore, and I, and he's, I think intellectually, he's like right on with so many things. However, I'm also a realist. I'm a beautiful lover of open source, but I have to be a bit of a capitalist to be able to make that continue to occur. Now you talked about like, let's leverage open source. But at some point, there has to be some, you know, is there a, a proprietary portion or, a, you know, some secret sauce patented goodness that that will be differentiated and allows you to still have a very saleable thing without services being the only the only sale that you can make? Yeah, so our SaaS platform is closed source, right? So that's a management plane uh, for multi-cluster across a multi-cloud environment. Right. Uh, our core engine into the, uh, the, the pallet orchestrator and all those, they help you to, uh, to, to provision a, a cluster profile right into one particular environment and then you can do lifecycle management. But for enterprise, if you're looking for end-to-end -end solutions, right, uh, with the multi-cluster, with additional belt and whistles, RBAC, single sign-on and all those things, right, those you all go through uh, our SaaS platform. Right. Yeah, it's the difference between. Oh, sorry. <laughs> the difference between offering somebody like some of the building blocks, right, and then really offering a, a polished service, right. So it's useful to know that this stuff exists, that the core technologies exist in open source, so that you have the option if you absolutely need to in order to you know go come up with another solution. But but I think you know, vast majority of enterprises out there, they don't really have an interest in trying to build their own thing. Right. No, no. I, 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 there's a few niche ones, and by niche, I mean multi-billion-dollar organizations who've hired more developers than VMware yeah. to yeah. run their yeah. Kubernetes. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's you know, I you, you can't name names, but you know, they may have initials that end in Morgan Chase. Uh, yeah. They may have <laughs> of America in their name. Like, look, <laughs> we know the big financials are are they were always strong on just building their own toolkit because they had to be able to control so much more of it. But I applaud them because they did it in the open. They actually contribute back way more now than, than a lot of other organizations who simply draw on it. So this is where I like the open source model. And I believe firmly, it's like have a penny, take a penny. If you ever see those things at a cash register, right? Have a developer, give some code. Need a developer, take some code. I, I think if you just take, I've never been this sort of hardened you know, person that if you're not contributing to the code, 
you know, then you're not actually supporting open source. Are you using the tool? Do you talk about that you use the tool? Then yeah. by golly, you're contributing to open source. You know, I, I, and I think that's really the right, I, I love that more people need to contribute. And I love where I can personally and organizationally allow people to do it, whether it's through money, through donations, through time, whatever it is. But I also know that, hey, if you can, if you're the 80% of your development in an open tool comes from your own company, great. I, I, don't, I don't think that's a problem. <laughs> so I love that you're, you're doing it in the open. You have a clear boundary and value that you can deliver with SaaS offerings and extensions and, and support and, and enterprise plugins, et cetera, like whatever that will look like. And then get more people using Kubernetes so that everybody can benefit right. from growing this whole ecosystem. And I think honestly, like we're not that different from even the big banks or telcos or any major enterprise, like a lot of different companies out there. There's a talent war when you're looking to bring on board developer talent, right? Yeah. Um, those people want to be able to go ahead and contribute to open source. So it's important to it's important to their own careers, right? So so being open arms about that, I think, is pretty critical if you want, if you want a great you know, a great development team. So what can we do? You know, I can definitely sense the, the people sides, you know, you're looking to solve a problem, remove the pain, you know, from people in, in what you're doing, what the platform does. And you both really have talked about open source and the value of it. And I really feel that like the people side is as important as, as anything what what can what are you doing and and what can we all do better to get people into those kind of programs of giving them time to contribute and supporting through advocacy programs or or what does your sort of next few months look like tina and and you know on developer relationships and and stuff like that how do you think we can better nurture some of those opportunities well, I think a lot of our focus right now, I mean, pragmatically, we're a, you know, we're a relatively young startup, right? So it's very focused on making sure we're solving our users' yeah. problems. But, you know, something that we're really keen on internally is, again, to, you know, what Henry mentioned, there are projects that we're engaged in within, you know, within Kubernetes and the SIG side that are really important to us because they're critical for success of our own product, right? And so I think, you know, encouraging people to be contributing and become active members of communities that are, you know, clearly aligned with things that they care about and their company cares about, make sure that it keeps rolling, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of self-reinforcing on, on its own. And then the other thing that we've been trying to do too is just make sure that, you know, you're talking about people and um, what we're doing internally, make sure that people within our organization feel as though they're empowered to have a voice, right? We want people to, to be presence in community, right? And whether that's little things like sharing in a technical blog, how they solved what, you know, was a problem that they banged their head against the wall for, you know, a couple hours around to, to actually writing something that's more of a treatise or, or again, digging in with, with code contributions. We wanna make sure that everyone in our organization feels really comfortable doing that. And part. <laughs> yeah, well, and these come from lessons of our experiences that we bring forward. And and Tenryo, I'd love to talk to get your thoughts. Multiple founder, uh, what are the lessons that you brought 
into SpectroCloud that you 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 knew were were that you've found out the hard way, perhaps in sort of you know, through other other ventures. I, I'm curious if you kind of were able to get there faster to the first phase of you know what you thought was ready. Because I'm, I'm always curious that when you see sort of serial founding, not that you've got like 12 under the belt, but like more than one is serial as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> successful as well. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, what are, does it get easier? <laughs> Absolutely, right? I think, yeah, there's always lesson learned from the previous experience and uh, hopefully we will do much better this time, right? Uh, so a few things I would say, right? So one is, uh, Really, I think less is more, right? As a startup, uh, you have a limited resource, limited time, right? Uh, you don't want to spread too thin, right? So I don't want to avoid the ocean and uh, be everywhere, right? But uh, stay focused, right? And uh, for every feature, it should really be the best thing green, right? I think that's more important than develop more features. And second, really, I think is, um, we really should eat our own dog food. I know Tina always wants to say we drink our own champagne. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> <That's laughs> much nicer that way. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but essentially the same thing, right? So I'm a firm believer, right? If we cannot be the user of our own product, we cannot use it uh, for production purpose, then we cannot expect uh, our customer will be, right? Uh, so for example, our entire SaaS platform our Kubernetes backend, it's all provisioned using our own tools, right? So that our developer has a first-hand experience how they actually deploy their production-grade application into Kubernetes and manage Kubernetes and what's the potential impact, right? Uh, so this way, yeah, get developer to learn what's the customer's day-to-day -day experience. I think that will be very important. It, it, it gives you this sort of empathy of, of the customer experience uh, and it's it's tough sometimes, when, especially in a startup, because you, the people you bring onto the team, it's it's like starting a small church in a sense. They have to be incredible believers and willing to, you know, they they have to really. It's a leap of faith both as a founder and as a, an employee for a small startup. And I say small, meaning, you know, anything under, under a hundred really, but under 50, especially, and, and you see the further you go down, the more sort of a leap of faith feeling it is. But the founders as much believing in the team as the other way around, because you have to believe that they're going to carry your vision. And how do you, how do you find people, Tenry, that, that you see as, understanding and, and believing in, in the vision that, that you and the team put together? Yeah, so really, I think we looking for people really, they enjoy the, the, the startup culture, right? That uh, uh, they more willing to, uh, to wear multiple hats, right? Be able to, or to, to help in every aspect of a business, right? Not just developer uh, working on the code, but whenever, if customer needs some help, right? sales need some help, marketing needs some help, right? They're willing to roll in the sleeve and do the work, right? And uh, it's a teamwork um, and be flexible, be agile, right? Um, and not only, and, and be, be able to take initiatives. I think these are really the key, uh, key kind of aspect uh, to working a startup environment. 
And right now we are, as we record, we're in the throes. And sadly, I've been able to say that for a long time of one of the most challenging worldwide sort of financial, business, societal challenges that we've ever thought we could face. And I see it as two-sided problem of this is probably one of the most difficult times for businesses to survive and many won't fund like large scale organizations that have been very successful up to this point may not survive the calendar year. And I also firmly believe it's one of the best times to begin a new venture. Now funding aside, cause that's, there's a, the venture funding world is going to be a little odd for a while as they weather out, you know, how do you get outsized returns in a market when we don't know how long that we're going to be closed kind of idea. But I firmly believe in the timing is, is very good. And, you know, obviously you have to build a certain amount of runway to, to maintain that. Um, but I, I'm excited by the opportunity you have ahead. And Tina as well, you know, your thoughts on when you look at your peer group and, and, and the founders and all the team that you've got wrapped around you, what's it feel like to, to be starting new and, and really creating something that isn't there yet? And you got you to gotta be excited and, and, a, and a wee bit frightened sometimes. <laughs> How does that feel? Well, the uh, wee bit frightened is actually a powerful motivator, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think you want a little bit of anxiety, right? It keeps you focused. Um, look, I, I think when I make decisions about where I go, it's it's really around the team and the general the general problem area, market space, right? If you're surrounded by a great team, then you're gonna you're gonna figure things out, right? That might take a couple tries, but you're gonna figure things out, and so. You know, to Tenry's point, like everyone that I have the pleasure of working with um, rolls our sleeves up. We want to figure out what it is that we need to do in order to solve real customer problems. And we're willing to try stuff out. And no one says, oh, that's not my job, right? So <laughs> yeah, it's a pleasure I, to work in an environment like that. <laughs> it is so, it, it's, it's so refreshing. I'm broken. I could never go back to a very large organization again. Because even when I worked in a large company, I used to build like micro teams and these like functional teams to kind of break away from the, the traditional silos. And they would always give me, you know, give me crap about like, why are you always talking to the network team and the storage team and, and all these different teams? Why are you hanging around with the developers? Like as if you're supposed to ride a different bus than them on the way in. <laughs> like, Be careful. Don't let the network team see you coming through the hallway. Like, but then when it came down to, we actually, the company I was at went through a merger and I didn't, I mean, nobody knew this was coming. It's like a very large organization. And all of a sudden I got the old like tap on the shoulder, like, Hey, um, can you come with us for a second? I was like, Oh, should I bring my coat? I'm like, Oh shoot. Am I in trouble? And they said, you know, come with us. And, and, you know, um, so we're going to, we're going to bring you into a room to meet some people. And I was like, Oh God, I really should bring my, I was like joking at first. I'm like, Oh, I think I may be on the way out here. What's going on? I have no idea. And they said, we need you to sign this non-disclosure agreement. I'm like, oh, okay, sure. Whatever. And then they, and I go into this room and it was all these sort of senior architects from the two organizations who let's just say, hypothetically, we were entering into the idea of, of merging two organizations and here's right. the technology stacks. Who understand? And, yeah, and what they looked for was we needed somebody who knew a little about a lot of things and mm -hmm. was comfortable crossing the silos. And I was like, 
or hold my beer. We got this, right? And, and it, was, it was so nice. And when I moved into the startup world, it, it's always like that, which is so cool. It's, it's tough sometimes, you know, because you don't have, there is no handoff. Like there are some days you're like, I think I could use a, I could use a handoff today, <laughs> but we do it, I think in, in, in fun ways. And, and I really, I really do adore that. What, what do you do to, as you motivate and, and do this building phase, Henry, how often, like, is it, do you do daily sort of daily meetings, weekly meetings? I'm always curious about the, the culture of continuous belief and how do you make sure that people are, are on track together and also not spending days in meetings, just trying to believe each other. <laughs> yeah. So we try to keep a process very light, right? And uh, yeah, we don't intend to micromanage everyone. Uh, so yeah, so we, First of all, make sure everyone understand the architecture, right? Everyone is on the same page, right? Uh, so whenever there's ar architecture decisions, uh, I think uh, there's always uh, a big team discussion, make sure everyone understand and agree to it, right? And after that, then we just uh, collaborate through different tools. For example, we use uh, Monday and Jira and all these, right? uh, so all these tools that people with dividing to task and then everyone work on their own and then Whenever there's a potential impact, right, and then the team will uh, actually uh, notify all the uh, consumers and the providers, right, uh, yeah. so that uh, all the potential uh, uh, areas uh, they will be all, uh, notified, right. Uh, so that's kind of how we operate, right. Uh, we intend to not to do a lot of meetings, but uh, still everyone uh, is uh, has a very high communication channels. Well, and it's, uh, I, I actually, I would love to, to, I'd love to talk to you all day on some of this stuff, but one last thing before we close out, cause I know we're, we're rounding up to time and I wanna be respectful of your time, despite the fact that I wasn't respectful to start. For everybody that's listening, I actually was late to my own podcast, which is not a, not a good strategy too. <laughs> so I, I would love to actually grab an extra few minutes, but dealing with hard decisions and and Henry, I know, especially at this point, sometimes you have to make key decisions, especially because of, you mentioned limit, making sure the resources are, are well used, but limited and, and the most effective and immediate use of those things. You can't go broad too early. How do you deal with kind of a decision where I've got four features that have been requested and I have to make a hard line decision on which is the one that's important or, you know, something of that nature. What's the, what's the way in which your team looks to deal with that? Yeah. So that I think we are pretty democratic, I would say, right. Uh, so it's really not a dictator, right? This, uh, I think uh, we as a team, we, kind of, uh, if there's an important decision that we'll have a meeting and we'll discuss together. Uh, but once we discuss, we'll be decisive on that, right? right. We don't go back and forth and, uh, and, and just a thrash on that, right? Uh, so once everyone in that meeting make a decision, right? Then we take a stand and then move on. It's, uh, I'm excited by the future. Uh, we'll look to catch up soon because I know you're in the, at this phase, uh, your, your, where are we at platform wise and availability just before we close up? I'd love to, for folks to know kind of where you're at in, in the state of the business and, and 
how they can find out more about SpectraCloud. Yeah, so we are still fairly early stage startup, right? The company was started in May 2019. Uh, we came out of a sales uh, last month, uh, or actually two months now, right, in March. Uh, uh, so we currently have uh, about 30 employees uh, span across uh, US, Indian, and Romania. Uh, and our product uh, has been in private beta since January. And we're going to J in the uh, second quarter. Uh, pretty close. Excellent, excellent. And uh, Tina, as you prepare for creating the the vision of of how people will will see it, live it, breathe it, creating product as a, a product, you know, management, product marketing, you probably have all of it <laughs> under your belt. Uh, you, this must be exciting time for you to kind of like just take this etch a sketch and say like, all right, let's start, see how it goes. All right, let's try again. You know, like it's it, how do you like this this phase of the startup life? This is so much fun because you're what's your job? Your job is engaging heavily with your internal team, engaging heavily with customers, right? And you're building something. And you know, to Tenry's point earlier, it's a team effort, right? So when we talk about future prioritization, like this is something where hey, we've got a lot of different perspectives. We have a lot of people, a lot of experience. Let's all bring it to the table, hear the facts, and figure out what we think the best course for it is. So it's, creation is fun. Creation's very fun. It is. Uh, I'm excited on your behalf. If I wasn't, if I wasn't tied up in a good gig, I would love to be, I'd be knocking on your door and looking for some opportunities. Uh, so yeah, I, I definitely, I, I wish success. I won't say luck because luck will happen, but success comes from great people with great values and great minds finding timing and luck. We didn't get a chance to talk about, but I talked about market timing and product market fit. And, and that's actually one I, we, I'd love to explore in a second session you know, down the road because you'll have, you've both lived some of those challenged implementations and seen them in the industry. But really, this is an opportune time in my belief. Uh, so I say plus one for Spectra Cloud. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Uh, we'll have links, of course, in the show notes for folks that, that want to hear more, want us to get in touch with Tenry and Tina and the team. Uh, lots of T's. I like that. It's a good alliteration. Uh, so with that, this is the Spectra Cloud team. Tenry, uh, Tina, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's a pleasure. <laughs>